welcome to episode 66 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Mental health is a subject that's taken center stage lately in large areas of our conversation. Everywhere you look in the media these days, people are talking about mental health. Certainly within the special needs community, the awareness of mental health for both people with special needs and their caregivers is becoming a major priority. But where do the standards for mental health come from? How has the conversation changed over the years to get to where we are now that mental health is a health issue? And who is providing the oversight for how mental health is diagnosed and treated? One of the major organizations for mental health awareness is Mental Health America. Founded in 1909, Mental Health America is the nation's leading community-based nonprofit dedicated to helping all Americans achieve wellness by living mentally healthier lives. Their work is driven by a commitment to promote mental health as a critical part of overall wellness including prevention services for all, early identification and intervention for those at risk, and integrated care and treatment for those who need it, with recovery as the goal. In this episode, we're talking with Teresa Wynn, the Vice President of Policy and Programs of Mental Health America. She discusses the growing awareness of mental health issues and some of the significant gains that have been made in the diagnosis and treatment of mental health. We also talk about the stigmas and misconceptions that many people have regarding mental health. I started off with asking her to do a quick summary of Mental Health America's history, how the organization began, and their mission. Yeah, MHA um, started in 1909. Um, our founders was Clifford Clifford Beers, who is a an individual who struggled with a mental health condition. Um, he was put into a state psychiatric facility and um, spent some time there. When he came out, he was so impacted by the experience that he had in terms of the conditions he experienced, the way people were treated, that back in the, that time, as progressive as you know the ideas were, he mm-hmm. made it his mission to change the way that we were treating mental illness um, because of the the lack of humane conditions that he experienced. Um, So today, as an organization, we carry on that mission forward. Um, MHA is an advocacy organization whose central focus is on fighting for the rights of individuals who live with mental health problems. And our history has been really interesting. Um, We are historically have been involved with the passing of really important legislation. So, for example, the creation and funding of the National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, More recently, we were fighting to pass mental health parity and constantly fighting to improve access to mental health care um, and insurance coverage. And even today, you know, fighting for fair and proper treatment of opioids, for example, is something that we do. So a lot of our work is in legislation at a federal level. We have 200 affiliates across the country uh, who fight and work uh, in the state or local level capacity, um, but many of them also provide direct services. Um, Once you see one MHA, you don't see them all because they all work differently. Um, Some of them are focused on children's services. Others are focused on adults. Others provide housing. Uh, So it's really great to just get connected to your local MHA and see see what they do. Well, that's fantastic. So uh, now what is your background and how did you decide to join Mental Health America? So my background is as a, gosh, 
I come from a family history of mental health problems. Mm. We have um, depression and anxiety and psychosis and addiction issues in my family. So just from a personal perspective, my family struggled with um, mental health problems. And despite that, I don't think I had insight into recognizing my own symptoms that started to balloon up when I was an early teen and kind of left that untreated until I was in my early 20s before realizing I really needed to get some help. So personally struggling with um, problems brought me to the occupation that I'm in, which is as a social worker. Um, And once I started down the path of being a social worker, got involved with community mental health, um, where I worked at MHA of Orange County and California and MHA of Los Angeles um, in Long Beach, California, and just fell in love with MHA and its mission of being person-centered um, and you know, recognizing the strengths that an individual has as opposed to being solely focused on their mental illness was something that I was really drawn to. And I just, I've fallen in love with MHAs. So every time I've moved to different places, I've stayed connected. And um, luckily when I landed up in Virginia, I got connected to our national office and Paul Gianfrido, who's our current CEO, hired me on as um a staff member to look at some programs and policies, and I've been with them uh, since 2014. That's great. It's nice to know that you can uh, not only help yourself, but uh, get a career there, so to speak. It's, um, you know, mental health, uh, the mental health community is a really interesting place. It is a, it is a community where having lived experience is something that's very valued, but that's something that I also love about MHA because we really support peer-based services. We promote and support um, the lived experience as something that is incredibly valuable, if not the most valuable experience you can have and bring to the table when you're helping yourself and helping other people. Yeah, that's great. Now, Mental Health Organ- uh, sorry, Mental Health America being one of the leading organizations and one of the oldest organizations dedicated to addressing the needs of those who live with mental illness, much of that work is guided by what's called the Before Stage 4 philosophy. Can you talk about before stage four in mental illness and what it means and how it can be identified? Yeah. So in, in mental health um, services, we often wait till someone is in crisis. That means someone is suicidal. It means that they have not received treatment for anywhere from two years, even with psychosis like schizophrenia, to mm-hmm. 10 years going untreated um, until they're so sick that things get bad. And it's like waiting like that is waiting like cancer until someone is diagnosed with stage four cancer before Mm. you treat. And so it does not make sense to do that. Um, What we know about mental illnesses today is that if you treat problems early when they first start, you actually can prevent and reduce or mitigate many of the concerns that we see um, people experiencing um, by providing them the support when they need it early on. So before stage four is about making sure that as a community, we take a prevention and early intervention approach uh, to addressing mental health concerns. Mm -hmm. And early intervention, they always say, is important to any kind of illness. Uh, So yeah, it's it's, uh, really important that mental health be treated the same way. That's exactly right. And it's 
funny because I think that most people understand that prevention of physical health issues is is the right way forward. Um, it's taken some time to get people to understand that for brain health, um, e- even though the science is basically there. And I don't think that it, as, a, as a community we knew that even serious mental health problems like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder were... Um, were in some ways pre- preventable or treatable um, in much better ways when you can tackle them early. Right, right. Now, there are all kinds of common assumptions about mental illness, and including that famous catchphrase that gets a lot on social media, where if you continue to do something the same way every day and expect a different result, that's uh, supposedly a definition of insanity. But are those assumptions correct or are they inaccurate? And what, is it, what are some of the most common misconceptions about mental illness? You know, it's funny that we bring up catchphrases to make sense of our our minds and, we, and the way they operate. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have brains, right? So we, I think all of society understands that we struggle with some kind of mental health problem. Mm-hmm. You know, 50% of people actually develop a mental illness in their lifetime. And for most people, 50% of those people, those problems start by um, puberty, so mm-hmm. adolescent years. Um, a misconception is that mental illnesses are something that happens to someone else. Mm. And when you think that, then then it's really hard to not deal to deal with the shame or the fear when you start to struggle. And inevitably, I think what, because we're human beings, we will have some struggles in our lives. Mm-hmm. And it's much better to be attentive to the ways that our brain can suffer and struggle in the exact same ways that our body will struggle and suffer when we are experiencing things like extreme stress, poor sleep, um, serious life changes. Um, and so that, to me, a huge misconception is that, in, you know, mental illness is something that someone else experiences, not me. Right. And, you know, like you said, there's a lot of stigmas attached to trying to get help for mental illness. What should people understand about seeking treatment and uh, relating those stigmas for people who do need help? The best way to tackle um fear and shame is to speak openly about it. So we've seen a huge shift in the last five to 10 years with people feeling more freed to talk about their mental health problems. The more we as individuals talk about our mental health problems, and what I see online and through social media is that our community members, our friends and our social networks, they come out and they talk about their mental health problems too. And we all realize that we've been suffering alone, which is silly because we wouldn't do that with other problems. We we would find community and figure out ways to support each other in the recovery from, say, Crohn's, right? Mm-hmm. But in order to fight fear and shame of mental illnesses, we have to start talking about them and feel like if we do, we will get supported. And taking that first step, I find, uh, for people, even if it's just in an intimate relationship to just share, they find that once they start to share, they meet many more people who also share and and build community slowly. And then as they feel more comfortable, talk openly with other people and strangers, and through that process realize, like I said, we all struggle with mental health problems in our, in our lives. It's an absolutely normal, you know, part of, of being human. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, I've noticed too, like you say, there's a lot more uh, awareness now. There's more social media groups out there. And uh, like we say, there's always the big uh, events for other illnesses and physical illnesses and things. But now finally, it seems that their shift is also starting to include mental health recognition and even events uh, geared toward that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really exciting to see individuals and commun- and people, um, celebrities who are influencers feel like they can share about their mental health concerns and not have that become a, a liability for their career. So uh, we've seen when people who are who are influential share about their personal experiences that the community does come around them and and that really does help spread the message that it's much better to fight in the open, which is a, a phrase that we um, have from Clifford Beers a long time ago, and we believe that that's the best way forward. Right, right. Now, sometimes some of the people who suffer from mental illness aren't the only ones who are affected with the problems. Family members and caregivers also could use help due to the stresses that a mental illness can cause for those who have it. What are some of the things that can cause the problems, and what should family members do to help themselves as well as their loved ones in situations like this in order to cope? So if, if you have an individual who has a mental health problem and their functioning is, it's very hard for, for them to live independently. Um, a couple of things. I think for caregivers, it's certainly important to have respite. So if you are taking care of someone, just like if you were taking care of someone who is chronically sick, um, it's important for you to have some space away. And you can do that um, by, if you have other family members who are willing to step in and help and give you a day of rest here or there, that's absolutely essential to stay in it in the long run. Um, And that's while you are primarily taking care of someone. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, I think it's really important for caregivers and families as a whole to think about a long-term strategy. And when you're in the moment and in a crisis, when you're taking care of someone who has a chronic mental health problem and it seems very overwhelming to take care of their concerns, it's very hard to step outside of the moment that you're in and try and think about the long term. But it, but for your long-term mental health, I think that's an important thing to do. And when you start to shift that frame, then some of the questions you have to ask yourself is, am I looking at my child, my adult child, um, or my support person from a strengths-based perspective? Am I looking at them and thinking, how do I set you up for future independence and success? Am I thinking about what skills, specific skills or supports you need to move in that direction? And how do I let go enough and allow you to experiment and live your life in that way, even though I know in some ways it might be insecure or cause suffering? And that's a hard process to accept and let, and let go of. Um, And that's understandable, but if you don't think about it in that lens, then what we want to do, and it's very easy to fall into this trap, is to caretake for someone all the time and to do things for them instead of letting them do things for themselves and fail. But that's failure is not the end or a bad thing. Failure is a part of the process, Mm -hmm. and people need to fail 
or what we say, fail, right? To mm-hmm. make mistakes in order to learn lessons and to get up the next time. Right. And so it's okay for a caregiver to let go a little bit, to let someone become independent, but recognize that in that process you will see some suffering, but you can't look at it from, you know, how things are going one month to the next. You you, you want to look at, like, is my person doing better, you know, today as he was six months ago, a right. year ago? Right. Because we're in it for the long game. Right. And sometimes you get caught up in just, you know, how am I going to get through this moment? How am I going to get through this week or this month? But uh, they really need to also keep that long term uh, goal in mind that, you know, there's a future here and we got to figure out where that's going. That's right. Because that, that, that crisis in that moment can feel, it can be an entrapment. You know, you, you get stuck because you, it's, and, and I get it, like, it's sometimes easier just to do it. It is, it's easier just to take care of someone and just fix it in the moment. Um, but you do that slowly and it just chips and it eats away at you over time. And you're just, and that, and you, you talk about, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. This process of taking care of somebody and just fixing things for them and doing everything for them, it can feel like insanity. It can, it will, for caregivers, they struggle with PTSD and and it's partly in many ways because of this cycle that they get sucked up into that doesn't feel like there's a way out. Right. And I think, uh, like you say, it's good that more and more people are starting to open up about this because it's not just the person suffering, it's the family members too. And being able to talk to other family members, I mean, uh, we have support groups for parents of special needs kids who have, you know, autism, Down syndrome and all that sort of thing. Having a support group or even just somebody else you can talk to who's going through a similar thing with a mental illness certainly to me would be a, a wonderful thing to have. Absolutely. And there may be a local group nearby that is a parent parents support group for um individuals who are t- caregivers for adult people with mental illness. And mm-hmm. that's something you can check out in your local area to see if that exists. Um, but I think, you know, to the extent that a caregiver is looking for supports for their children and then can stay involved but recognize that they there's some involvement about supporting the person but some distance as well, I think, is a useful frame. Um, finding a support group is absolutely in- essential. You can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. Um so, and, and it's, it, that's key. The one thing, I will say one more thing that's important, and it's the next step in, in the progression of supports, mm-hmm. is that parents can't do it alone if we as a society do not support people. So if we do not set up and invest in infrastructure to support people, then we don't have a society that helps caregivers. So I talk to people who, you know, I, I work currently, my, our office is in Virginia, and Northern Virginia is in an area that is has incredible wealth hmm. and a, an utter lack of resources, right? Right. It is appalling that people cannot get mental health care in Virginia. And so many of the families that I talk to, um, they can, they will work and try as hard as they can to support their families. But because there aren't mental health services in their community, they have to do everything by themselves. And that is 
that's not that in the end everyone loses that family is struggling the person is struggling and, and then our clients end up going to jail and we as a society pay for it one way or another in many of these high cost services and that's the exact opposite of before stage four you essentially waited until someone is in jail and in crisis and so we pay for it right. in, in big big ways and so the final issue that we have to do is to take a policy focus and make sure we set up infrastructure in our communities to support people holistically. Definitely. Well, you know, and we're, we're, I was just going to ask you about that anyway, because there seems to be a very strong push in some segments of the political system lately that wants to eliminate funding for mental health support and either scale back or outright eliminate some of the improvements to the programs over the years. What do people need to understand about these issues? Because unfortunately, it is a political issue. And uh, where should people look to uh, try and uh, make changes as far as how the system is perceived and supports? Um, It's absolutely backwards to cut funding because we already are operating at significantly insufficient uh, funding Mm. for mental health services. Um, If people want to get involved, they have to get involved at the county level, uh, at the state level, and talk to their... um, you know, get involved politically, pay attention to bills that are coming up, and calling your legislator and getting involved is very powerful. Uh, most of us don't realize that we have a voice and a power to be able to voice the concerns that we have. And um, and so we, it's easy to kind of fall into this space where you don't think that you have, um, where you don't have a role uh, in pushing your political leaders to make sure that they are voting for what you believe in. And we just had an election, and I think that's a, an example for of, you know, how are you paying attention to the ways that your state budget has an impact on what kinds of services you have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, policies matter. So I see some states that are very well-funded, and they have budgets where we have a robust mental health system, and the kinds of services that a person or a family can get in those states is very different from what I see people have access to in states that do not invest. And all of that comes down to the leaders that we elect, the kinds of policies that we pass, that we vote for, and that starts with getting involved um, with politics and policy. Right, right. And then, you know, there's also been a rise in the past few years in politics of blaming mental illness for a lot of different criminal problems in America, and they want to push toward increasing prison confinements for those who have mental illness. What do people need to understand about these situations, and what's the truth about those who have mental illness and, uh, you know, the uh, idea that uh, uh, more crime gets committed by people with mental illness? Mental illness should not be a crime. If people with mental health problems are going to jail, it is because we as a society has have failed to support people. Most people who go to jail because of their mental health problems enter in because of small crimes that get enhanced, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, I was mad and I burned a picture of my girlfriend and threw it on a car, and I am now charged and arrested for arson. 
any normal person who I describe this to recognizes that this doesn't make sense. We should not incarcerate and charge people with mental health problems and put them in jails, which are very costly to society because of this type of situation. Mm-hmm. But we do because, one, I think the, the, the jail and the prison system can be profitable for some people. Oh, very, yes. <laughs> so we are invested in promoting systems of profit um, on the backs of people with disabilities. And unfortunately, people with mental illness are easy prey to, to suck into that system to, to do that with. Um, another issue is that we do not invest in community mental health services to keep people in the community and a recovery-oriented judicial system that says, I refuse to book someone and charge them with a crime when I can see very clearly that this activity that somebody is engaged in is not because of criminal intent. It is about their mental illness, and I'm going to divert this person to a mental health treatment, hopefully that does exist, then and, and not send them to jail where they will inevitably get worse absolutely get worse and come out of jail worse off for it and then just enter into that cycle. Right. And we've seen an insidious process with jails because in some ways we've created systems where some people have said, well, we have to arrest people because the only place to get them care, housing or treatment is in jail. And that's just wrong. Right. Well, a lot of jails don't have any programs in existence that would treat people with mental illness. That's one of the things that is an extremely uh, well, uh, poorly uh, covered uh, problem in the prison system is there is no mental health support in prisons in America. That's right. Um, pe- there, there is no mental health support in prison. Um, people with mental illnesses are more likely to be put into solitary confinement or be restrained. Um, these are practices that are do not they absolutely make people worse off. Um, have impact on their mental health problems, their brain functioning. It's inhumane to do that for long periods of time or any short time. I think that any solitary confinement is not healthy, um, is cruel and unusual punishment and should be done away with. Um, And certainly our populations are are significantly more at risk of being hurt in jail um, uh, and, and, and treated quite poorly and as a result come out of those systems much worse off than, than when they went into them. Right. And I know I've, uh, I've read, uh, you know, a lot of uh, evidence and studies that show that people who have mental illness really have a difficult time being social and therefore they really they don't want to cause trouble. They just want to be left alone if possible. And so to arrest them and claim they're criminals, I think, is a is a, a huge, huge mistake. Um, that, yes. Um, people uh, with a mental illness are more likely to be the victims of crime than a perpetrator of crime. Hmm. And if they then that's absolutely the truth. Um, I think that what happens is these stories about what with people with mental illness become sensationalized, and then as a society, we overestimate the likelihood that somebody who has a mental illness is dangerous, and that's a, a misconception that should be 
pushed back on. Right. Well, I think it doesn't help, too, that Hollywood always uses plot lines where uh, it's the mentally ill who are the horrible villains because it's just, you know, it's easy yeah. for them to do that. Because yeah. nothing nothing has really changed as far as mental illness in uh, Hollywood uh, in uh, over a century. They still want to portray them as the villains. Yeah, absolutely. Um and use either in a in the light of uh, the quote crazy person who's dangerous and psychotic and homicidal in a scary movie, or even comedy where you make fun of somebody who's struggling with a mental health problem, and 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 then we laugh at them. Either way, those uh, those portrayals are exaggerated and just frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Well, now to go from the negative bits, uh, what are some of the improvements that have been uh, happening in treatments for mental illness uh, over the past few years that people should know about and can offer some hope for a lot of folks? I think that the biggest shift is really making sure that we all know that you can get better, right? Even for illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, you talked about caregivers, but I don't know that even as a society we we tell caregivers enough that you things can get better. Um, it's sometimes the case that you know, better, the word better might have to shift in terms of your expectations about what better can look like, but it's, it doesn't have to be the case that your loved one has to go to a state hospital and locked up in that kind of place for a long period of time. We've tried to move away from those systems um, to make sure that people feel like they can live in the community. So one of the best things that we've seen in the last 20, 30 years is an increase in community mental health, um, to making sure people are integrated in the community, a focus on employment and education, making sure people who have mental health problems um, complete school and can enter into competitive employment and live, you know, whole lives um, outside of their mental illness. So they're not defined by their mental illness. Like, they're not schizophrenic. They are John, who has a job as a... um, a technician, anything, just like you and I, and, and have that kind of life outside of their mental illness was a, was a shift in a frame that we've only seen in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, and it's still a hard idea. I think some people think, oh, if I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, then kind of my fate, my fate is sealed and I don't have a future. And I, I talk to people who have schizophrenia who absolutely um, – with supports are able to live full lives. And I think that's the most important frame and shift in frame uh, from a treatment perspective. Um, Outside of that, I think we've also done a better job in some states (laughs) with investing in comprehensive community mental health. Um, It means that you have something like an assertive community treatment team model um, in your, in your, area. You have therapists who do more than talk therapy, who understand the value of rehabilitation, um, employment, support, and building relationships with one another. Let's see. We have newer advancements in medication. Um, 
I think that most medications today have fewer side effects than we've seen, you know, 40 years ago. And so many of the people that we work with um, actually would like medication, and we know that um, there are medications out there that are doing a better job than we've seen in the past. And what else? Hope. Yeah, yeah, hope. (laughs) You know, the most important thing is hope. Mm. Uh, You can't... You can't recover if you don't have hope um, to stay in it through difficult times Uh, because even though mental illness is, uh, even though recovery is real, uh, it doesn't mean that it's easy. Yeah, it takes work too. And one of the things that uh, I think doesn't get brought up often enough is that the costs of the medication, which, uh, yeah, they're very high, uh, but the cost of medication and treatment is still so much cheaper and so much more uh, affordable than the cost of incarcerating someone. It's more expensive to lock people away in prisons. It's more expensive to lock them away in state hospitals. Mm -hmm. And it's more expensive to wait until someone is so sick that they require emergency care. Mm -hmm. Much better to treat people early, much better and less expensive to treat people in the community and especially where we we move them towards independence and again having a job and contributing again to you know uh, being an active member in society which is a, a goal that many people want they want jobs mm-hmm. yeah i think that's what everybody wants they just want to be able to take care of themselves you know, yeah, absolutely. Easy. Yeah. What are some of the possibilities for future of mental health that you're looking forward to seeing? I am looking forward to the continued openness that we see um, mm. as people talk about mental illnesses. Um, you know, I think that more people feel open to talk about their depression and their anxiety and their alcoholism. I want to see the same embrace and openness um, extended to individuals who uh, feel suicidal and who feel alone, uh, for individuals who struggle with schizophrenia, who are voice hearers, um, or bipolar disorder, who experience ups severe ups and severe downs, I I really look forward to um, we as a community being able to talk about those challenges openly and then then for others who see this kind of openness to embrace people um, with grace and love and kindness as compared to fear. Um, and I, and to me, I think when we can do that, uh, we'll see large strides happen um, for people who struggle um, alone. And, and I think that that will also then trickle down to good policies because we recognize the importance of investing in these kinds of services for our community. Right. I think overall that's that's got to be the key is to help educate and help uh, convince people that uh, the treatment is so much more effective and so much better for society than the alternative, which is to just let people suffer or even have them uh, locked away, as they say. Yeah, and, and it, not treating home, not treating mental illnesses increases the homeless situation that I think everybody across the country is talking about, right? 80 plus percent of individuals who are homeless 
have a mental health problem or a serious mental health problem. I would say 100% of people who are homeless struggle with some kind of mental health problem right. um, because homelessness takes a huge toll on you. Um, but if we wanted to do something about homelessness, we would address mental health. Right. Well, you have to. It's the same thing, practically. Absolutely. Well, I think now would be a great time to mention that uh, Mental Health America has a new online screening program as well, where people can find out for free online if they are having some kind of a mental health problem. Can you tell us how that works? Yeah, so this is actually an area of treatment that I'm excited about in the future. Uh, MHA provides anonymous confidential mental health screens at www.mhascreening.org. Um, mm-hmm. And what we're seeing is that young people who are struggling with mental health problems for the first time are Googling and kind of coming onto the website, and they'll take a depression screen or a psychosis screen and in the process learning more about what those sy- symptoms look like, um, asking questions. We hear from people um, that this is the step that they take right before they realize they need to talk to somebody for the first time in their lives. Um, we started the program back in 2014 in terms of of um, offering the screens and uh, collecting some information that you, that's useful for us to continue to build out supports for people. Um, we've now expanded to over eight screens, including psychosis, bipolar disorder, um, depression, anxiety, a parent screen, a youth screen, substance use screen, and eating disorder screen. And it's free. And once you take a screen, what you can also do after that is explore all the different types of supports that we've put on there. I mean, we're continuing to build out those kinds of options for people and trying to think about learning how people use digital technology to get better. Right. So we talked a lot about the system and how it sucks. And we think it sucks because we didn't invest enough. So what technology offers you is a way to provide a ton of support to people um, at a very low cost and to a lot of people at one time. And so what we're exploring at MHA is how do you do that? How do you provide supports if I never get a person walking into a clinic? And I think it's a really innovative question to ask, and I think that that's the future of mental health is we're going to explore how to treat people um, outside of clinics in in a way democratizing mental health and and taking it outside of a clinic into your home. Well, that's great, you know, because I think one of the big stigmas that people have is the idea, oh, I got to go to a clinic and be surrounded by a bunch of other you know, whatever, I don't want to say it, but a bunch of other crazies out there or something like that, you know, and I, I just feel a little depressed. I don't need all this, Uh, you know, so I think that, you know, removing the physical location and going online might be an excellent way to really help people. Yeah, definitely. We see more people interested in that kind of approach. Um, it's a gap in the system. People, We don't have options for people who are showing early signs in this way, and they're not ready to go talk to someone right away and certainly don't. Or even have the capacity to, if they don't have a clinic in their neighborhood or they don't have a way to get to them. So we see that in rural communities. So there's a lot of opportunities online to help people who are suffering alone. Yeah. Definitely. Um, What would you say to someone who is looking for help? They're not sure what to do because of the stigma or the embarrassment they might feel over mental health issues. What if you if you could uh, talk to someone one on one and just say, look, you know, here's what here's what I would want you to know. Most of the people I talk to actually want help. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I feel like more people are dying for help, Um, but but we as a 
but we're not investing, so we're leaving people to suffer. Talk to any family member, caregiver who's struggling. They will tell you a long history of how they have fought to get care, right? Mm-hmm. Um, most people who have mental health problems, especially when they start to balloon up during puberty, the parents recognize these problems and they see them. They, they want help for their children, um, but we're not taking care of their children. We're not taking care of them. So there isn't an issue of fear or discrimination there. People recognize that they need to protect their children, so they want support. Um, if I was talking to an adult who was experiencing a mental health problem for the first time as an adult. And this, you see this happen with transitions. So, for example, um, maybe I have someone who is recently retired, right, These, or, or a young student who um, is going away to college for the first time. Mm-hmm. These kinds of life transitions are, are really are, 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 are periods of time in the person's life that is an increased risk factor for having some kind of mental health problem. And I would, if somebody said, I think I'm having a mental health problem and I, and I see that they've gone through this kind of shift, I'd say it's absolutely normal to feel the way that you feel. Um, many people do. And it's okay to say maybe I need to reach out and get some help to make sure that I can get through this period of time and come out on the other side and better off. And focus on that. It's like, how do you want to feel in the future? Um, What is that that you envision? How do you feel now? And how is that getting in the way? What are those goals that you have? And focusing on those aspects and not labels is what I would say Mm -hmm. uh, for somebody who is helping someone who is going through a transition. And to, to the person who's struggling, I would just focus on, you know, that. What is the life you want to live? How do we get there? I, you know, we we talked a lot about policy and a lot about systems and caring for one another. But when you dive down deep into some of these issues, a lot of it is personal. Right. And sometimes we often get in our own way. <laughs> I get in the I get in my way of my own recovery process. I even get in the way of you know the recovery process for the people who are closest to me. And it's because mental illness is personal and it feels so. It's, it feels, there are a lot of feelings. <laughs> right. um, and I think the only thing I can think of is really to remember that we should have compassion for ourselves <laughs> mm-hmm. as much as we have compassion for others and to just be okay with honoring the process and to not beat ourselves up. Right, right. And of course, there's that old, uh, that is that old standby that some people take like, well, what's wrong with you? Just snap out of it. But that that doesn't work very easily, does it? (laughs) (laughs) If I could do that, I would have done that. Right. (laughs) I think everybody would. If it was that easy, um, mental illnesses are not a light switch. You do not turn on and off. You fall into a mental illness slowly. Um, It's a a slow breakdown, just like diabetes, until you kind of pass a threshold and you can't just snap out of it. Just as it took a while for your brain to struggle and lose functioning, it takes a while for your brain to grow and heal. And if you can remember that it's a brain, it's a muscle, it needs time to heal, your person, you you as a person can't just snap out of it, and the person that you're supporting doesn't just snap out of it. But again, look at it in incremental stages. Don't look at yesterday or today or a week ago. Look at, is this person doing better? Am I doing better than I was six months ago, three months ago? And if the answer is yes, then great. Keep doing what you're doing. 
My thanks to Teresa Wynn of Mental Health America for taking the time to give us all this great information. We have links posted to Mental Health America's website and the link to their online screening tools on the page for this episode at specialparentsconfidential.com. I'd like to invite you to join this conversation by liking our Facebook page. You can comment on this episode and other episodes, share stories, and even suggest ideas for future episodes. Just use the Special Parents Confidential Facebook link on our website. We also have other social media buttons that make it easy for you to share our podcasts on all your favorite social media platforms. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.